Are you building or running an internal machine learning team? How about looking for a new ML position? On this episode, I talk with Chip Hewen from Snorkel AI about building ML teams, finding ML positions, and teaching machine learning. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 298, recorded November 18th, 2020. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Datadog and Linode. Please check out what they're sponsoring during their episodes. It really helps support the show. Chip, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Hi, Michael. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to meet you, and thanks for coming on the show. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about ML and putting ML into production and building ML teams. We're going to talk a lot of, probably cover a lot of buzzwords, right? Like AI and ML <laughs> are, are so top of mind in all of the... I need to impress people by throwing out all the buzzwords. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, right. <laughs> IBM had this really funny commercial, which is ironic that it was IBM, but it had this really funny commercial like 10 years ago called Buzzword Bingo. I don't know if you ever saw that, <laughs> but it was really, really hilarious. I'll see if I can link to it in the show notes, if I can dig it back up on YouTube. But yeah, so we could definitely win that one today just because it's such a growing and interesting topic. Yeah. But before we get to all that, of course, let's start with your story. How do you get into working with programming in Python and machine learning? It's really funny because like when I was younger, I thought like being a programmer was like the most boring job in the world. I was like, why would anyone want to spend the rest of their life sitting in like a basement looking at a computer screen, you know? So right. this, this is for the antisocial people. <laughs> uh, they don't want to go outside. They just, like you said, sit in a basement. Yeah. Don't they have friends? Like, yeah, I know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the the views changed over the last twenty years or so, right? Like it's yeah. Society has sort of viewed that differently, but yeah, it's how it was. I think as far as growing up, you just realize you becomes a person that you should make fun of, you know. So that's that's the story of my life. <laughs> so when I was younger, I actually come from a writing background. So I was traveling the world. I noticed I was like nice and stuff, but it's like not that nice. So I was traveling the world and writing a lot about culture, people, a lot of food. So I came to Stanford thinking I would major in script writing because I thought it would be uh, fun. But then I took some CS courses and then I talked to CS friends and they were like, what is this what you make for an internship? Just like what my family makes like the entire year or something. So I was like, what is so cool about it? <laughs> so I took, I took CS courses. Wait a minute, courses. maybe I should pay attention to this, right? <laughs> this is starting to sound good. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, so I took some CS courses and I think Stanford did a really great job of like, getting people interested in computer science because all the literary introductory courses are extremely well designed and exercises are not just like, I don't know, boring things. It's like trying to design a button to increase something. I don't know. I don't know what boring lectures are. But there's a exercise like building games, so you could play games. Yeah, so a lot of fun things. So I took them, yeah, I took the courses, really enjoyed them. And then I took more courses. I think initially it was more of like, financial needs because uh, I need to TA to make to get some pocket money. But then I TA'd and then I met some wonderful people who are so TAing. I think I stand for the course we call session leading. It was really fun and I think I just getting sucked into it. And yeah. Fast forward four years I major in computer science. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And do you still do any、uh, writing? Oh yes, I still write a lot. So I think it's it's quite a bit tricky because of writing in critical writing is very different from the kind of writing I did before. So I can't really switch among them easily. So like I think I think like for me it put it easy like. A month just focus on like technical writing, so like blog posts and documentation. So I so I write a lot about, for example, like paper summarizations or just a new cool techniques I learned. I think recently I did something about so so I look up like two hundred machine learning tools I could find and I try to analyze. Oh no no! Wow! It took me so much time. So the kind of writing is very different because in if you want more technical writing, they want to get to the point, right? But also sometimes I still like to write stories, like nonfictions, like and when I write stories, people want to be taken on a journey. They don't want to, they don't want、right. to show the destination right away. So <laughs> so I tried and I so I do a month of that and then I switch the mindset to another. So yes, to, I still write a lot. That's cool. It sounds like a lot of fun. So you one of the things that is interesting about your story is like you decided to do some programming classes and get into it. And at first, you were not so sure that that was. The full-on path that you wanted to go down, and as you got deeper into it, you saw it as more interesting. You made friends and connections, and you sort of saw the human side of it, and got sucked more and more into it. Right? Yeah, like yeah, programmers do have friends. Yes, I learned that. So <laughs> yeah, that's good, right? It's encouraging. Yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting to me is a lot of times you hear people early、mm-hmm. in their career thinking about like, well, what should they study? What should they? Go into, or if they're changing careers, what do they go into? And a lot of times, the advice is follow your passion. Like, what are you passionate about? Like, well, I'm really passionate about soccer. Okay, well, go into soccer. Like, and what I've, I think, I've seen over the years is a lot of people who are actually super passionate about what they're doing. They didn't go to it because they just knew from the beginning that that was it. It's like somehow as you get pulled in, as you master a topic and you learn more about it, like it. Be- It's like this mastery and understanding leads to passion, not the other way around. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. So that's something I, I think about sometimes. So I realized over the years that there are things I thought I would enjoy doing. So I thought it was my passion. So at some point, I think like I would totally wanted to do AI research, and then I took three months off in travel, and I realized that, like I read every day, I write every day, but I didn't read a single paper. In the three months, so like it's just not something I enjoy doing. So I realized that I want to become the person who do my research, but I don't want to do actually be doing it. Yeah. So I think I think those things you just need to like spend time and think about it, and like to just observe what you do in the free time to know what's passionate. And so don't think of passion as something you find. I think passion is something you cultivate. So you might not know. So so you know, have you ever had this moment? Like you study, you learn something, and it's like so weird. You don't understand anything. It's just like miserable. And it has a gotcha moment. Everything just makes so much sense, and just like keep doing deeper and deeper into it, and it suddenly becomes a passion. Yeah. So I do think that in the beginning, I think it's really useful, like to just try out new things, but like don't just do too short. Like give it some time to actually see how much you learn, how much you grow in it. And I think it's no, there's no pain. You know, like just there's no shame in just like leaving something you don't think is for you. But you definitely need to give things time. That's good advice. Yeah, a lot of people want to find that thing that they love and just go for it. And I think actually the answer might be just experience a lot of things. Yeah, and then decide right, which is awesome. So you took some CS courses and did a bunch of writing, and now all of a sudden you're on the other side. <laughs> of the podium, right? You're doing a little teaching as well. Yes, I don't think learning and teaching have to be mutually exclusive. So I started teaching when I was a student, and I started out not because I was an expert. As a TA, 
no, as an instructor for the course. So I started out not because I started teaching it, not because I was an expert, but rather because I wanted to become an expert. And so in the beginning, it was like, so my first course I taught as an instructor was TensorFlow for deep learning research. So at that point, TensorFlow was fairly new and I was using it in my own internship and I couldn't really find good training material. So I was, I went to my professors and was like, hey, can you like take a course on it? Take a course on it? And they were like, oh, we don't have time. Like, you know, for professors, you put their name on the line, they could have to like, yeah. and I was like, have to do, make a lot of investment to make it good. And they were like, why don't you do it? And I was like, what? And I said, like, yeah, they have Stanford has this thing like to allow students to like initiate course. So I did it. And in the process, so I started with it as like having a group of people who also want to learn TensorFlow and learn to with them. So I just tried to like anticipate a lot of questions by just Googling a lot. I was like, I know I spent like half of my waking hour on Stack Overflow or something. <laughs> so that's how it started. I think now I still, still continue doing it. That's cool. I think you could just learn so much when you try to teach something. It's a really valuable way to just get deeper and deeper into it. And this is at Stanford, right? Yeah, it was Stanford. I think it's not so like learning, but that you realize what you don't know. Because, you know, sometimes you think that you know something, and then you start explaining to people, it was like, you have no idea how, how it goes. Yeah, for sure. The way that I think about it is like if you were, say, a consultant at a company and you had a programming problem to solve, like let's say you need to do something with multi-threading, right? If you find one way that works, you're done. You move on to the next thing. Yeah. But if there's three ways you could have done it as a teacher, you have to know what the three ways are. <laughs> what when should you use one versus the other what are the trade yeah. like, these are questions that just a lot of times you don't have time or energy to dig into but once you start teaching you're like well i better know it because they're going to ask me there's more ways than one how do i do it and why right like it really just makes you give it like this other perspective on trying to learn about stuff yeah no i think it must be like some like teaching rule like if there's a question you don't want to answer students and i ask it oh they can like use <laughs> yes i remember from uh, teaching uh, math classes as well like you know that they're just going to hone right in on that one thing that you were afraid. Of. Please don't ask me this thing. I don't totally. So they can smell fear. Like. <laughs> exactly. Can, yeah, exactly. All right. So you are doing teaching at Stanford right now, but you're also working at, at a new startup, right? So what are you doing today? That is a great question. I have been asking myself that question ever since I joined a startup. Uh, <laughs> so I think startup life is great. I think it's so dynamic. Uh, we have been growing so much. Like the company have increased in size and multiple times since I joined in December. So it's been like oh, less than a year. So it's a blessing. I think the, when I joined the Snorkel AI, I told the founding team that I'm I'm looking for an environment where I can learn like different aspects of business because eventually I want to start my own company. And they've been extremely supportive. And so in the beginning, before we launched, we were like very much has down building the platform. So my job was like entirely on the engineering side, like building out the modeling service and like other features. And then as a company launched, and we suddenly like had a lot of interest from people. Like, and I was humble brag. We had two people. We don't have time to talk to them. Um, <laughs> no, so, so we suddenly had a lot of interest. So I, I think we needed more people to like responding, like just talk to to potential customers. So I have been spending more and more time on that side. So yeah. So recently, I the I just decided to switch like most of the time on the go to market side. You said your ultimate goal in the long run is to do something on your own potentially. And yeah. those two things you talked about, those are the two really hard aspects of starting. You know, like one, the technical side, because you have to sort of bootstrap it and get it going. But the other is like marketing and get the word out, positioning, like all that stuff just so often on the technical side just gets ignored until 
you build it and no one comes, you're like, all right, well, now what are we going to do, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely, they are both like really different, difficult aspects. I think like another aspect is like recruiting. I think like, I think companies can like, like good people can like, making a bad hire can basically like bankrupt the company early on. And so, so I think like one reason why I enjoy the company, this company I'm with is that, so I look at the team and say, wow, like, how did you manage to like convince like great people? And I'm saying, it's like when I say like, how they manage to convince great people, I mean, how does it manage to convince me to join them? I'm just kidding. Um, I feel like everyone <laughs> on the team is like, it's pretty great. But I feel like it's with, with, a, with a strong team. Like, yeah. So I think what I learned about startup life is that like, you don't just stick to an idea like from beginning to an end. You try out different things and you try to pivot. You try to like in the beginning you have a hypothesis, right? You think that like this might be something people want, but you don't know for sure until actually like working with like customers. So over time you learn different things. You change your ideas. Or like maybe there's some like giant company launching exact same thing. And like how do you compete with that? Yeah. So sometimes it's not about the idea. It's not even about the property. It's about the people because like with a strong team, even if you throw out the existing product and build a new product, it, it can still have a chance of like competing. But if you have a bad team and it is a current idea proves to be like wrong, that you can't you can't really recover from it. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting about working with small in a small company like a startup is you get exposure to so many different things, right? You're not just the person that does billing in this way or build that part of like this pipeline. Like you have to really get your hands into many parts. It's stressful, but also I think you grow a lot if you get that opportunity. Yeah, I think I think it's the discussion people have been talking about, like the difference between working with big company and a small company, right? So, like if big companies, you have the you can't you're allowed to like focus on one small thing and go really deep into it and spend like many many of the waking hours on it. But a startup, like there are many things going on and you have to like maybe like cycle among them like quickly. So we say like if big companies, like big companies can can afford to hire specialists who can who can do one small things really well but startups like a lot of they might want somebody who can do a lot of things okay-ish like not like expert yeah yeah a lot of prototypes do it quickly try it out then work do something else find a gap fill that hole all that kind of stuff right yeah i think it's good like really depends on like the faces of life i know there are people who who really just want to like keep their heads down and focus on one thing so i mean there's no there is no shame in it. I think I have so much respect for people who can do it. Yeah. And so I have so much respect for people who can like adapt quickly and learn things quickly and just like build things. Yeah. You got to find the one that works for you. So one of the things that you've been writing a lot about, you're working on a book actually, is basically about building teams in the ML space yeah. and hiring people. And I think that this is a big challenge right now because so much of the folks in the data science space it's so hot and so many people are coming from different areas, right? Like there might be somebody doing ML, but three years ago, that person was, I don't know, working in finance or maybe another person, she was like a biologist, but she got into programming and now she's doing machine learning because she's sort of, right? So it's, I think it's actually a little bit challenging to hire people in this space because it's not just, well, show me your machine learning PhD and we'll talk about it, right? Like, yeah. There's probably not that many people in that realm, right? Like there's not as much traditional education in the workforce yet. Yeah. So I, I think I agree with you that hiring is hard. But I think that it's, hiring is hard right now for machining is like for many reasons. I think I think the first reason is like it's probably because companies don't even know what they are hiring for yet. I think because machining is like it's really new and if you like imagine a company like you have never 
deploy a machine learning model before, and now you're trying to start a new team. So you pretty like, uh, what do you need to like build a machine learning models? And you have no idea. So you pretty come up with some very generic ways and like you like you say somebody who's like doing like state of the art research, somebody who can code really well. Yeah, somebody who can explain what they are doing. So it's just like this people just don't exist. Yeah, that's a good point. But I think the second thing is that machine learning itself is not new. But machine learning in production, so like especially from the explosion of like deep learning in twenty twelve. I think the first major application of deep learning in industry is probably Google Translate. Like in 2016, and uh, since then, a lot of companies have been looking into it. So it means that so so I think like industry is like lagging behind like research like a few years, right? So like research like grows, and it have a lot of right. people knowing like how to do machine learning in academic environment, and then like industry say, oh wait, you can actually use that like to improve our business, so let's do it. So like at that time, like so we're in the phase when companies are looking into it. But most people who know machine learning comes from the academic environment. So they are familiar with like how to like do machine learning research, but they actually might not be like familiar with like doing machine learning productions. And there are not many people who can teach them because usually you need a hands-on experience. So we have very early phase of like machine learning adoption in the industry and I think like, so that's why we are lacking people. But I think in a few years, we will have a lot more. And hopefully like understanding of machine learning productions plus availability of people with actually hands-on experience will make hiring less, a lot less difficult for company. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can imagine if I was hiring, say, like a couple more web developers or somebody to do database ETL, like bring in the data and clean it up. Yeah. You already have people in your organization who do that. And you can say, well, what do you need? And please talk to this person. But if you're creating an ML team, like I know there's really large companies out there that don't have a single person who is doing like productionized machine learning. So it's you like you point out, it gets starting from zero. And a lot of times, you know, is that person who you're talking to really competent to make that decision or make the right trade-offs, right? Or even know what you're hiring the person for. Yeah. So yeah, so handling what you hire the person for and also like having people to like evaluate the skills can be very, very hard. So so I think I see a lot of so, so, but actually I do see some shift in the future. So I think like a lot of aspects of machine learning are being commoditized. So for example, like you're seeing a lot of pre-trained models, right? And people just like train the model for you already and they open source it. And you have a lot of like pre-built model, like hugging face. So, so you can just like code API and then you can incorporate like some machine model in those systems. So actually like, it's all like a lot of tools to have, allow you like feature engineering or like, uh, rules-based systems like monitoring tools and deployment tools. So, so I do believe that the bottleneck for machine learning in production now will be in the engineering part. I'm not saying that we stop doing research. I'm not saying that like a lot less companies will do research. I think that doing like the machine learning part can be like a, a few very large established company who know what they are doing, <laughs> and then. A lot of other companies who use machine learning can just like use like uh, existing tools and platforms. So the challenges can be like, cha- like engineering challenges and not machine learning challenges. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's getting pre-built out there. Like I think Apple ships with some pre-trained models for running on iOS. You've got like Azure Cognitive Services, stuff like that, right? Where you just, yeah. you kind of just bring that in. This portion of Talk Pythonomy is brought to you by Datadog. Are you having trouble visualizing latency and CPU or memory bottlenecks in your app? Not sure where the issue is coming from or how to solve it? 
DataDog seamlessly correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python application. Plus, their continuous profiler allows you to find the most resource-consuming parts of your production code all the time at any scale with minimal overhead. Be the hero that got that app back on track at your company. Get started today with a free trial at talkpython.fm slash datadog, or just click the link in your podcast player's show notes. Get the insight you've been missing with Datadog. So I guess one question, just thinking, sort of reversing a little bit, I guess you could see it from both ways. If I was somebody who was looking for a machine learning job or I was hiring somebody, how much do you think that engineering side should matter? It sounds like it's pretty important. Like, so should say like being competent with Git and source control be important? Yeah. Continuous integration. Should you know something like fast API or Flask or something like that to build a service around your model? Yeah. What are the skills you think are really important there? I think it really depends on like what type of jobs do you want. So I think there are like I think I want to say the term "cherish" in a machine learning engineering job, but I don't think machine learning engineering is that old to deserve the term "traditional." But I think I just people have been using the last few years machine learning engineering as in like feature engineering, creating models, training the model, like babysitting models. And I think that part requires a lot of machine learning and NS engineering. But like if you work to like set up distributed pipeline, like how how should do like how should how can it process data in like parallel how can you print model how, how can you deploy model so that it can serve like a lot of requests at the same time with low, low latencies and then, then you probably need more systems and databases and machine learning and if you are in the part when when you want to like monitor the system like maintenance and like monitoring so you can like how do you like push updates without like interrupting the service or how do you if something happens, like how can you be alerted when some bad things happens and then you can address it quickly or how can you roll back the system? Then I think a lot of it has like it's very similar to DevOps. So you can need to do a lot more things well. Right. So, so it really depends on what goals you want, the company you want, because I think one thing I noticed is that like companies have very different structure for their machine learning teams. So companies like, okay, for example, Netflix. So they, they have this like separate like algorithm team, they focus on the aspect, algorithmic aspect of machine learning, right? But so, so... Yeah, the recommender engine is so important over <laughs> Netflix, right? I mean, that's so central. Yeah. They even had that million dollar prize to see who could recommend... Yeah, they do. ...movies you should watch next best, right? Yeah, but it's just really funny because like, I think like this competitions are great, but like the result is very hard to actually like be deployed. So, so I think like, I'm not saying Netflix is not using the winning result i'm just saying that like for a lot of these competitions like the winning solutions are even though the winning solution perform well on the leaderboard they tend to like be very hard to be deployed because the solution is way too complex to be reliably deployable yes oh interesting yeah or maybe it's overtrained exactly on that one thing and it's perfect at that but it's not generalized enough or something yes that's one thing i think that's one thing we have been talking about like how just started competitions like leaderboard driven oriented work is actually not very much close to real life because when you have a leaderboard right you tend to have one single objective you work toward for in this case you like how get a model with the best performance but whereas in productions you don't have one single objective like you have different stakeholders of the company and they have as one different things like one person might want like hey we want as the best performance but then it's like hey we want the lowest latencies and others like hey how do we can like do it the way that we can show the most ads without being obnoxious or so there's a lot of things and sometimes you just optimize for one thing like you can't really 
go for other. I think it's some interesting example of how like a machine learning model that can do very well on leaderboards that's like not going to be usable in real life. So think about that. Like, did you remember that I think about 10 years ago was like, so so these giant retail companies who have been like trying to like predict whether someone is pregnant so that they can like advertise directly to that, right? Yes, yes, uh-huh. So and like, and then someone found out and then, then they sent like all the baby product to like this teenage girl to her family and like they didn't know about it yet and now they suddenly know about it. So this is an example of like, yeah, they got really angry. Like, why are you sending my daughter this? And it turns out actually she was pregnant, yes. right? Oh my gosh, that's yeah, that's not so good for her. No, no, it's not. So that's an example of like it can be so good, it's creepy, and and you don't want that. Or yeah, I think about like how we have a, a machine learning model that's like that can help so users to like solve the problem really well. So there are two things that can happen here. Like one is that like it solves the problem so well that the user is just done they never have to come back to you ever again and you just lose business or they like they some problem so well that users just love the system they keep coming back for more so like it's really hard to find the linear relationship between the model performance and business performance yeah i did really think about the relationship of these like competition winning algorithms and models and stuff but yeah that makes a lot of sense that just because it solves that one problem it might not be practical to run in production or to maintain or whatever evolve it yeah i think you need to like so i think that's that's why it's important for people who like who in charge to like give a, a good sense of what they want and how to like balance between different objectives of different stakeholders in a project yeah so give me put the hiring hat on for a minute and if you're at a company that does not yet have an internal in-house machine learning team but you think maybe you want to Maybe we, we can analyze all this data we have and we can find some trends and do more interesting stuff. Yeah. And you want to create an in-house ML team. Like, what advice do you have for those people? Okay, so it really depends on who you are. Like, if you're like Walmart or like McDonald's, right? You just want to acquire a, like a very promising ML startup and just have a in-house team. And I think a lot of the big companies are like going for that approach. Yeah. I think another approach is that I think see a lot of companies are doing is like to transition into ML. You might want to like use some of the existing talent in the company. So machine learning is new, but data science is not. So I think data science people teams have been like uh, company has been having data science team for a long run. And data science teams also like work with data and they do a lot of it. Uh, they already have access to data and they also try to get like patterns from data. So I think a lot of team like yeah. in the beginning, they, they transition, like use data science team as, as like, hey, how, why don't you learn machine learning and like try, try these things out? Right, maybe these, maybe a couple of you could learn PyTorch and work on this project <laughs> and, and get started. Oh, you, you make joke about it, but I think it's like pretty much how people do it. And I think you see a lot of people in data science <laughs> yeah, transition yeah. into machine learning. And I think especially now with abundance of machine learning courses, like there's so many courses online for free. Yeah, I think it's great that people are taking advantage of it. I was looking up like, so courses like, do you know Andrew Ng machine learning course? I, yeah, I haven't taken it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. I think it has like more than 2 million people who have taken the course already. 2 million students, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty new, right? I think it's pretty new. Yeah, that's really crazy. Yeah, it's new compared to other disciplines. But I think that like in machine learning, it's, it's like probably one of the older courses. So I think a lot of teams do that. And I think, but I think like for, for companies who do that, I think want to like, hope that they just like to look into the difference between data science and, and machine learning. So data science is like to look at data to like the output are like insight for like to help make decisions about business for so you can predict 
the like how much the customer demand in the future or like yeah but machine learning is like the goal is to have like to build product to be like engineering so so for data science like you want people with stronger statistics skills because you look at the data and get inside but for machine learning yeah it's more engineering so you want somebody with like stronger engineering skill and less stats yeah right so as a data scientist maybe your output might be here's a jupyter notebook with a plotly yeah analysis of of what we're thinking whereas as a machine learning person your output is here's the api that gives you the answer Yes, you can. You can take it that way. Something like that. Yes, yes, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is a very different focus. I'm not saying this like I'm not trying to make a general statement here. I'm just saying this like just from so I'm talking to a lot of people. I tend to notice that like data scientists are much better statisticians, whereas like machine engineers are much better engineers. So. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that as well in some of the trends. So yeah, it seems totally reasonable. Let's reverse this a little bit. So we were talking about if you want to build a team. And you did point out, by the way, bringing someone in from the inside, like I feel like data science more than software developer, that role needs to be sort of intimately familiar with the way that the business works and the way the data is collected and and all the little idiosyncrasies around it. And so having somebody who already knows all that stuff and now you're just like, okay, adapt that to machine learning might be easier than getting somebody who's good but has no experience in the business. I think like... I make a living out of like saying that I know machine learning, right? So of course I want to like make machine learning as hype as possible. But I have to admit that like machine learning for a lot of like simple models, you don't need to learn. You don't need to spend years and years and years of like learning to like be able to use simple models. So I think that's like one thing I noticed is like, it's actually a lot easier for good engineers to like pick up machine learning often for machine learning experts to pick up like good engineering. Gotcha. Yeah. So like if I was to start a team, I would probably try to get like really good engineers and have them learn machine learning and then like apply machine learning. Then like to hire machine learning experts and then like having them like spend like several decades to become good engineers. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good perspective. Yeah. All right. So switching the role here to being interviewed for a machine learning job. So you're working on this book for machine learning interviews. And it gives you like a sense of sort of if you're going to go apply for one of these jobs, what are some of the skills and things you might expect to be asked about and so on, right? Want to tell us quickly about that? Yeah, so so that's a book I've been working on for like oh my god, a year and a half now. Do you know like how he has so many great plans for twenty twenty and just none of them happened? I think this is what's a case that's a case with my book. <laughs> I think it has so much great plan for it, like and then like <laughs> boom. So yeah, so it's a slow, it's coming along. So I think my book is not just a book for like here's the questions they will ask you or like yeah. how how to answer them. I think Part of what I want to do with the book is to have some standardizations or understanding into the process. I think it's new in the industry, so it's new for both interviewees and interviewers. So, for example, people still ask me, like, would be confused, like, what is a machining engineer? What is a data, data scientist? Like, what's the difference between big company and small company? What is the hiring process? What skills you need? So, I think like, there's so many skills that one might need, but usually, like, you don't need all of them for for a single role. So I think my book is pretty, definitely start from it. It's a different, uh, I think it lost you. Sorry, I don't know what happened to my network. It just said that it lost and like all my stuff disconnected, but we're back. <laughs> yeah, so we were talking about the book and you said it wasn't just for people like to know what the questions and answers were, but that it like it's such a new industry that it's both new for interviewers and interviewees. And I think we were going from there. Okay, yeah. 
So support the book issue some gives some understanding, standardization, and just the process of differences between different type of roles, like what is a data scientist, what is a machine learning engineer, or what is a research engineer. Also, I get the difference between, like, for example, like machine learning engineering and data science and ML ops. So I just want you like get a good picture of the process, what skills are needed for each process, and like the interview and in the real pipeline, between pipeline. Yeah, and a lot more. Yeah, that sounds. Uh, look, we need all the help I think we can get for fixing the interview process. Oh my god! In software development, and data science, it seems so broken to me. I, I've had some friends who have gone through it recently, and it just seemed really, really rough. And I actually, did an episode. Wait, let me do a quick search. Well, what are some of the highlight of the like pain points? I think a lot of it is you get asked to work on like low-level algorithms, like explain or create or recreate low-level algorithms, sometimes even just on a whiteboard. Yeah. Where like, you know, go create quicksort and then never ever in your job will you ever go and create quicksort <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah. Like you would just go to the list and say dot sort and it would be done. I interviewed Susan Tan a while ago, back up, way, way, way in episode 123. And she said, she did a talk called Lessons from 100 Straight Developer Job Interviews. <laughs> I think she was in San Francisco as well. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly. A hundred is so much. And yeah. she literally did a hundred and then like took notes about what worked. And Oh my God. You know, you'll get like these big like homework projects, yeah. right? Like work on this for like a week and then, you know, there's a hundred applicants. So like the energy put into that yeah. is often not. Anyway, I think helping both sides of that story would be really good. Yeah, I would definitely love to like read her interview because it sounds exactly like what I have been working on. I'm curious, does she like propose like what are some things that work? She did. And it's been, gosh, it's been like two or three years since I, I spoke to her about it. But I know she had some advice for like, these things were really bad. And these things I experienced were really good. Yeah. And so she, she basically laid out like, what are some bad interviews I had and what are some good ones and, and why? And I think probably in there, you could pull out some good advice. Yeah, that's like really interesting because I think like before, as I was still like interviewing for jobs, I was like, I had so much to complain about the interviewing process, right? But now it's part of like a startup and we're trying to build the reading pipeline. We realize that it's really hard. Like even though we complain about the existing pipeline, it's really hard to come up with something that is yeah. better. So I think I think it's just like too many. So the first of all is like, Interviews are just like proxy to evaluate somebody's skills, right? Yeah. So you know, like how even like so now you link this example. I know it's maybe like not very exact, but like for example, I like think about dating, right? You try to find somebody and like, just approximate whether the person is a good fit for you, and you might go dating for like years, and you still end up with like some bad partner, if possible, right? So like <laughs> exactly the divorce rate's like fifty percent <laughs> or something, right? Like it, we're not totally getting this nailed. Yeah, so I think like for 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 job interviews, like you try to like admittedly like the stake is lower, it's like for a job, not for a partner, but you still have much less time, right? Like you only have like a resume, like everyone say you shouldn't keeps our resume longer than one page. So you have one page of that. And then you maybe go on LinkedIn, social media, look at things. And then you have like a few hours. Like it's really hard to like get a good picture from it. And a lot of it's like biases, like because interviewers are humans. And even though we try not to like, we, we are learned, we, we are taught that you shouldn't let biases, you shouldn't decide, like judge people based on that. But like, but something we, we, we like, 
we we grew it like something is like yeah we, we just not we just do it without even like being conscious of doing so and also like it's very different for different people because some things that might work for one group of people might not work for as a group of people so i think like for example like we have been uh, trying to debate on uh, on take home challenges so like, a lot of candidates told us like oh my god interviews like so stressful like one-on-one is really hard why don't you just give a take-home challenge like just make it like i don't know make it hard we're gonna spend like a day on it uh, when it be done and you can see the, how good we, we are but then like we thought about it and we talked to people and then we realized it's like for people who have a lot of responsibilities outside of work like especially like for example women or like people with small kids they can't spend a day like do take-home challenges so i think like it what might work for you yeah and if they apply to 100 jobs then all of a sudden that's half a year or something like that right <laughs> yeah yeah so it's very hard so some company, some people told me that, oh, they like this concept, like that company, when they bring you on to like, as an intern-ish for like a month, they pay you. And then if you do well, then you can get a job. And somebody say, oh, that's great, because now everyone get a chance to like show how good they are at the job. But then like, not everyone can afford to like just go on a job without any commitment for like for a month, right? And it's going to be totally exclude all immigrants. Like for example, if somebody needs visa sponsorships, they can't just go and work for Right. It's a very precarious situation if your presence in the country is based <laughs> on, you know, you have to have a job. And if it lapses for more than a month or two, then yeah, you've got to leave. That's really stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really hard to find something to work for for everyone. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. One, it's been a very long time since I hired anybody, but I used to help with hiring people to do training, people who would be Come trainers to teach, you know, basically for professional development for software developers. And we would obviously go through the resumes and see if they made any sense. And then we would just do a quick, like 30 minute call. And I would say, okay, so imagine this person says, I'm a Python expert and I specialize in Flask. All right, we're on a Zoom call. Share your screen, build me a Flask app that has one function that returns JSON. (laughs) If I give it two numbers, it adds them. I mean, like anybody who's ever worked with Flask should be able to knock that out in five minutes. And you can tell from like one minute in, is that person on that path to like get there? Cause they know you start with import yeah. flask and then you create app <laughs> equals flask or are they just flailing about, right? They just have no idea. And there's no way that they can both be an expert in flask and not be able to create like a hello world yeah. app in it. Right. And so, I mean, that was the first sort of filter we used before we actually would ask them the equivalent of like, here's a take home project or something. It's just like, show me live that you're semi-competent with the tools you claim to be like top notch in, right? And that actually worked pretty well, I think. I was blown away at how many people would claim to be like, I've done five years of this and I'm a super expert and I'm ready to teach it to other people and then they can't even begin to touch it so i think that's an interesting interview approach but i also find it's like for if you do interviews it's very like tailored like specific like overfit to a specific to a specific tool then we might find people who are really good at one tool but then don't really just like scale like right at a range scale and i think like for startups we if like if a fast changing company when you need to like have a lot of like new problems and have you to keep yeah, we will have to like keep loading new things like, if you just like get something who's like, really good at like one thing and they can't Generalize other. Sure. What I was trying to more find, what we were trying to discern was they said they were expert at this thing. Yeah. Are they actually like how much can you trust? So if they can show they're expert at this thing they said, then probably the other stuff that they said they're pretty good at. They're probably also in that realm. Yeah. But if they're like really far from like how they describe themselves in one axis, then they're probably are not really gonna be in a good fit. So yeah. yeah I don't know. It, it worked okay. We didn't do that much hiring. 
This portion of Talk by Thunderbase is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing large workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. As listeners of Talk Python to Me, you'll get a $100 free credit. You can find all the details at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Just choose the data center that's nearest to your users. You'll also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes clusters, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode, or click the link in your show notes, then click that Create Free Account button to get started. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is, did you hear that Guido Van Rossum just joined Microsoft? Oh my God, yes. I think, yes. Yeah, I was like, it's really interesting. What, what was the thought on it? So he said, basically, he's been retired for six months. He's like, I'm really <laughs> bored with this. I want to go back to do something. There, there's a ton of cool open source yeah, stuff yeah. going on there now. And you know, he gets to work with some of the other language teams and make Python, basically just focus on Python and, and be around it. Yeah. And that's all interesting. And I think it's actually kind of a big deal that that happened. And it's like a really big contrast from Microsoft 10 years ago that this is even possible. But yeah. the thing that I want to bring up specifically now is somebody on Twitter asked him, so did you actually have to send in a resume, Guido, before <laughs> they hired you? And he said, yes, yeah. he had to send in a resume. He went through a bunch of interviews. The interviews make sense, but he had to send in his resume and he had to provide his uh, degree he got in university and like his transcript, like his grades and stuff what? he got in college. That's thing I don't get. And I'm just thinking like, what, what if they, what, who cares if he got an F in like literature or, uh, or didn't like, look what he's accomplished yeah. since then. It doesn't matter, but that's just another one of these hiring things, right? Well, we got to check the box. We need his like university degree and transcript. Yeah, that is so funny. Or this technical fellow. Does that reminds me of like a few years ago? Do you know Malala? She was like the youngest Nobel uh, recipient for Nobel, like in peace. Do you know Malala? Yes, yes, I do. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really funny because like at the time she was like, oh, she wanted to study at Stanford. And like Stanford was like, yes, but what's her SAT score? And everyone was like, she's like youngest recipient in Nobel Prize for Peace. And you're asking her like, what her SAT score? And I was just like, <laughs> exactly. yeah. She's going to cram them through the bureaucratic <laughs> uh, pipeline. It's, it's so funny. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the other takeaways that you're like hoping to give in this book? And you also have a chapter that's open on GitHub people can download, right? Yes. Yeah, so this is the chapter. So I think one part of the interview a lot of people ask is a machine learning system design. And uh, so, so the question is usually like here, like if you want to like build a system to do that, how would you do it? So it's very design high level questions. And I think... So first of all, one, one question could be like, if you trying to build a system to predict uh, what keywords is trending on Twitter, then what would you go about it? Like what is considered trending and blah, blah. Yeah. So I think this question is very interesting because it's usually like try to measure the understanding of like the different parts of the system and not just like machine learning. But also find that questions can be like pretty, very hard for like especially junior candidates. 
because they don't have a good a graph of like what is a production's environment. So some company. Yeah, a lot of times you have to see examples of that or have built examples of that to know like, well, these are the five pieces we got to put together. And then, then you do it, right? Yeah, so originally I wrote it as part of the interviews book but then as i start writing more about it and i learning more about it it was like oh my god there is like so much more in machine system design so now it's actually become like a full-blown book on its own <laughs> so that's why it's taking me longer and i'm actually like teaching a course on it like machine learning system design just just on that part oh that's cool and you're teaching that in january is that right at stanford yeah it's gonna be in january at, at stanford yeah it's a, it's a bit strange because I'm not sure how teaching online is gonna go. I'm a bit, I'm a little bit nervous about that. Yeah, it's not the same as standing in front of the class and having that experience. That's for sure. Yeah, but but some people told me that it's a different experience because some students like it more because especially for the introvert, now they can just like ask questions anonymously without having to raise their hands and having everyone stare at them. So it's gonna be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should definitely be interesting. All right, I think we're just about out of time, but maybe. Just real quickly, you could give us the elevator pitch on Storkel, Storkel AI and what you guys got going on there. Ooh, okay. So I think like for the pitch, I think I can just say why I decided to join Snorkel. So it's funny because it's a startup that comes out from a Stanford AI lab. And I have heard of them for a while. And I was like, and when it first approached me, I was like, oh my God, another startup from Stanford. I know it sounds super smart, but I was like, oh, startup, AI, whatever. <laughs> but then like I came across the paper. So they had, they, so most of the founding teams are like PhD students and they have been publishing a lot. I read one of their papers and I was like, this is really smart. So, so the key idea for their paper was that like instead of, manually label on the data, right? You can have some like, heuristics and causal heuristics into into programming functions and apply to on the data at once. That's the really hard about thing about training your models is you get like all this data you have to say car, bicycle, ball, tree, right? And you just gotta like go through it and teach it basically. Yeah. So so you notice like how like labels like for example you see like an email was a spam or not spam, right? You pretty notice you probably have some heuristic like hey if you say like Hey, you're gonna have, uh, like, uh, hey, please send me money to, like, Nigerian prince or something, like, you're pretty spam. So, so you have some, like, heuristic in the brain, like, so if you can find what you end cause of heuristics and you don't have to manually do it on at once. So I think there's like, the algorithm, so, like, how to, like, combine, because some, so the heuristic gonna be noisy and, like, overlapping and, like, complete each other. So the core algorithm was, like, how to, like, combine one of them and I generate like what the clinic is most likely to be correct grassroots because you don't have grassroots actually compare grassroots. So then you generate the set of grassroots and then you, you and so they they open source that part. So like anyone can just go on GitHub and use it. So I went to the court and thought like wow these people are like good engineers because you think of like PhD students are like bad engineers. But then they the code is like good. Very clean. They have own testing and everything like Unit test. Oh my god! No, nice. <laughs> <I know. Yeah. laughs> so uh, no, no. So so I think the product now is a. It's not just a part because actually a lot of people think of snorkels is a thing of that labeling part, but we actually like a full on like a end to end platform. So we have you from a data to like modeling training. Like we do a lot with like monitoring and analysis because we believe that you can't machine learning is because it's changing fast and updates of models constantly and so we believe in iterative development so like you have a you you train model and you see it and it's not good so you go back and see what's wrong and how do you improve it and like you manage more data so so we version everything as a process by the way and so that's cool 
It's like agile data. <laughs> we don't use the word agile yet, but <laughs> if it's one of the buzzwords of sales, then maybe we can adopt it. Like, <laughs> no, no, I'm just teasing. It's one of my buzzwords. Just kidding. Oh my God. Please, somebody from Sonoko, please don't fire me. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we do a lot of, so it's an end-to-end platform for people to build machine um, AI applications. And it goes on data model, monitoring analysis. And I think it's pretty dope. You guys should totally check it out. Yeah. Right on. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a, a cool company to work for and definitely nice applied machine learning stuff. So building tools for machine learning folks, right? Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I think that it's for machining forks, but I think like right. uh, we recently wanted to lower the entry barriers for able to build AI app applications. Mm. So I think like, uh, so our platform is actually like no code. So like you have the option to just use a so application without any code at all. But we also have like our SDK. So like for people who like want more like flexibility, then you can also like, like code. Yeah, very nice. All right. Well, good luck with the whole company and the startup. Hopefully it takes off and does well. It sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So we're pretty much out of time, but yeah, thanks for all the, the advice on building machine learning teams or getting to be part of one. <laughs> now, before you go, there's always the two questions I ask at the end of the show. Ooh. And one is, if you're going to write some code, some Python code, what editor would you use these days? Oof. So I sometimes I really want to be smart and say it's like I use Vim, but actually just use VS Code. <laughs> <laughs> VS Code is definitely the most popular answer yeah. these days. It's, it's all good. And notable PyPI package, like something, some Python library or package that you've come across, like, oh, this was so cool. People should know about X. I'm not sure. Is this, so, 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 do you know about, I think it's it, like paper mill. So it's, it's allow you to format. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. It's allow you to like, do a lot of experiments with like Jupyter Notebook. I think. Yeah, and paper mill comes out in Netflix. So it's a neighbor of yours. And nice. Yeah, the idea is you can almost treat notebooks like, functions, right? Like you can pass arguments to them, run them and get like something out and then even chain them together. Yeah. And one of the things I heard was really nice about it is if you create sort of data pipelines of one notebook going to the next, the next, and if something goes wrong, like the notebook actually contains like all the data that came in and what it tried to do and how far it got. Yeah. It's like almost a record instead of just like server failed with 500. Like, no, like, here's all the details. You can go back and look at it. Yeah, it's pretty dope. I think I think it's really cool. I think there's been, like, so many exciting work in the notebook space. I think I also really like Streamlit. I think Streamlit is, like, it's, like, really cool. For, like, you create, like, very quick applications. I mean, there's just so many. Yeah, that's really nice as well. Yeah, what is your? Hmm? Which is your favorite? My favorite? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, there's all these different ones that always blow me away. I go through so many of them. One that I came across recently that was pretty neat is called a back off. Someone told me about that. And back off, what you do is just put a decorator on one of your functions. You say, if I get this kind of error, like this type of exception, yeah, like wait five seconds and then try again and then wait 10 seconds and then try again. So if you're doing like testing against like an API and you get like a too many requests error, you can say, instead of fail the test, just wait one second and try again. That just sounds pretty dope. I think I need to check it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's super easy to use, but it kind of solves that problem of like mostly reliable, but not all the time reliable stuff. Do do you like star things on GitHub when you see repos that you like? I do. Yeah, I star stuff all the time. Yeah, can I just go into those? Can I see go to the star list and let's see like what have you been like looking at? Yeah, so GitHub.com slash Mike C Kennedy, and let's see. I'll I'll pull up my stars and see uh, where are the things that I've starred. There we go. 
So the things that I have up here right now, that's a really good question, by the way. Like really cool way to look at it. So I have pip chill, which is like <laughs> pip. You know, if you do pip freeze, it'll show you what you've installed. Pip chill will like pip freeze will include everything that was installed, including the dependencies. Pip chill will just show you just what you manually installed, not the dependencies, which is cool. Nice. Then link it. L-I-N-Q-I-T adds like link functionality to the Python language is cool. I love the name, by the way, Pip Chill. <laughs> <laughs> Pip Chill, yeah, it's so good. And then I have a Fast API Chameleon and Fast API Jinja, which adds like those templating languages to Fast API as a decorator. Oh, you saw MB Black, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, MB Black adds black to notebooks. Yeah, so those are the ones I've starred recently, I guess. I'm so funny. So, so you- those are all good. So you install like a lot of fast API, but also install a lot of Flask. Do you have like, you prefer one over another? Yeah, I do. I really like fast API. I've been liking it a lot. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's so brilliant. It takes all the cool modern features of Python and puts it together. So let me make one recommendation for you. If Check this out. I just want to get your reaction to this for people as a, yeah. a data science machine learning person. Hand calcs. What is that? Have you, have you seen hand calcs? No. So HandCalc is crazy. So what this does is you write, you create a Jupyter notebook yeah, and you write some sort of math equation that is actually just the computation. And then you can ask it to show you and it'll show you as if it wrote it in LaTeX. What? Like step by step, like how, yeah, like how it solved out the problem. So it'll have like, like the nice square root. So if you're doing some kind of like computation that's somewhat technical and hard yeah. in Jupyter, it'll actually show you like what you would put into like a math textbook or to physics textbook to derive the equations and even the steps you might take to go from one. Can it do proof for you? I don't know how far it can go with a proof, but if you just go to a, like Google hand calcs. Wait, how do you spell it? There's a bunch of animated GIFs. How, how can you say me the name? H-A-N-D-C-A-L- H-A-N-D-C-S. Like oh. C-A-A-L-C-S. Like hand calculations. Okay. Is this, is this from corner first? Yes. Oh, that's dope. And. Oh, yeah. If you just page down through it, you can see like all these amazing steps. You can like render like symbolic mathematics and like the steps between various things. Yeah, it's really, really. So if you're doing like complex calculations that you want to make sure you got right, like reading the Python code to do it is harder than like reading the symbolic mathematics of it. Wait, how does it do this? Yes, I have no idea. But it uses like SymPy and a bunch of other LaTeX and all sorts of crazy stuff. So as a data scientist, like this thing is killer i think that is pretty dope nice thanks for showing me i want to show to my friends (laughs) yeah so yeah there you go so there's there's a a topical recommendation how's that nice that's that's helpful and thank you oh that's dope (laughs) of course cool all right chip well i think we're about out of time but i just want to say thank you for being on the show and sharing all your advice and i guess one final question if people are interested if they're out there looking to do some machine learning are you guys hiring? Yes, we are hiring a lot, actually. That's actually one of our challenges, like how to keep on yeah, hiring a large quality of like quantity of very good people. Yeah, that is that is definitely a challenge. But we'll put a link maybe over to like the jobs page or something if you want. People can check it out. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest in this episode has been Chip Hewn, and it's been brought to you by Datadog and Linode. Datadog gives you visibility into the whole system running your code. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. They'll throw in a free t-shirt with your free trial.
Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the Create Free Account button to get started. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.